Okay, Genesis chapter one. Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. It is the day that we will rejoice and be glad in. I pray, Lord, as we finish this day and that we'd finish strong. So I ask that you would give to each one of us ears of understanding, minds that are able to comprehend, and ultimately, Lord, the ability to have you magnified. May you be bigger in our minds when we leave this place today. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, verse 14. We did the first 13 verses last Wednesday. You can pick that up if you want to. So now we're doing days four through six. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Just to recap, in verse two, it says the earth, that word there in the Hebrew is the ha-aretz, probably better translated the land. We think earth, it's this blue planet. Ha-aretz, this word that's used consistently through the Old Testament, almost always refers to the promised land. It's a certain chunk of land. So the ha-aretz was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in verse two, you have this space, this land, wherever it is, and it's uninhabitable. It's without form, it's void, it's dark, and it's deep. And so what I said happens is you have days one, two, and three that the formlessness is formed. God forms things, forms the heavens, forms the seas, forms the land. So days one, two, and three, God takes care of the form problem. And then days four, five, and six, God fills what he has formed. He takes care of the void part of it. He makes it into a habitable place for people, okay? So that's my premise for this chapter. In verse one, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's the entire universe, including our sun, including our moon. Everything is created in verse one. It's all there. It's not completed yet. And people can say, well, you know, why isn't it completed? Well, God has no problem building things in steps. That's what this entire chapter is. God builds on day one, builds a little bit more on day two, right? God has no problem doing things as a process. Could God have created the whole thing at once? Sure. It wasn't like day one, God's like, 
whew, I'm exhausted. Making light was tough. Time to take a nap. No, right? It's this process. It's really going to show us a rhythm for life, a seven-day rhythm, okay? So God, everything is created. Heavens and earth, you can read Joel chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where it says the heavens and earth, and then says the sun and moon. It links those two together. So the heavens and earth in Joel 3, 15 and 16, include the sun and the moon. So I believe in verse one, you've got the sun and the moon. That's why verse two, you're able to have day and night. It works out, everything works out better that way. So then you have to ask the question, what happens in day four? What's God doing in day four? Because it appears like he's making the sun and moon in day four, but you're claiming it was already made in verse one. Well, we're missing a gorilla here. And it's the Hebrew syntax is very interesting in this verse 14. It uses some infinitives. I'm not gonna get deep in that. If you want to, you can research that. But if you look at the syntax of verse 14, verses, verse three, where God says, let there be light. In verse 14, my translation says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Literally in the Hebrew, it should say this. And you got to catch this. It should say, let the lights in the expanse of the heavens be to separate day and night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. You're saying, okay, what does that matter? God didn't make them then. God is saying, This is their function. They've been there. They've been doing whatever they're doing. God now in verse four is give, or verse 14, excuse me, is giving the sun and the moon their purpose and their function. They've always been there. They've been doing their thing. Now their function is what? Separate light from day, night, excuse me, uh, signs and seasons, days and years, lights in the expanse of the heaven. So God gives them a purpose and a function. And then the end of verse 15 It says this, and it was so, okay? That is, if you're gonna read the Pentateuch, what Moses writes, that is his signal that now he's going to give a little editorial comment. So if you've read the gospel of John, John does it all the time, right? Something will happen. John knows his audience is wider than just Jews. So then John will say, oh, by the way, this is what that meant. So a great example is chapter seven. In John 7, Jesus says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and I'll give him water. Gushing waters, right? Torrents of water. And then John says, oh, oh, by the way, uh, Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given. So John adds in his, hey, I'm trying to explain what's happening. That's what Moses is going to do right here. So, and it was so, it's done. They have their function. And then Moses adds, and God made the two great lights and the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. He's gonna do it in Genesis chapter two as well. After Adam sees the woman, goes poetic, verse 24 of chapter two says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Isn't that out of place there? Did Adam and Eve have a mom and dad? 
no, who is this? This is Moses now and almost like, hey, hey, by the way, this is the whole reason why you leave mom and dad and you go do your thing because of what happened in, in the garden. So it's an editorial note, all right? And that's what Moses is doing. So he does it right here in verse 16 as well. Interesting. He uses in the verse 16, and God made. This is a very different word than in verse one, in the beginning, God created. In verse one, the word create there is bara. It is always divine. It is never used of humans. It's never used of anyone but God. It is a mandate that only God can do. God borrows. In verse 16, the word made there, you could use it like this. I went and I made the bed. Did I create the bed? What did I do to the bed? I ordered it. I took existing material and I formed and I ordered it and made it into something better, right? I made the bed. That's the exact word used there. So it is as if in his editorial comment, Moses is making sure his Hebrew guys would have known this was not created now. It's God giving them order, like making a bed, marry, or uh, uh, um, taking existing material and making it. So that's what I believe happens. Sun and moon are already there, but it has this purpose. Here's the purpose. Number one, it's against idolatry. These little verses right here, it's a, um, it would be a way that the Hebrew mind 3,500 years ago would have known God's against idols. Guess why? Because the name for the sun and the name for the moon were both gods. But in these verses, God never uses them. It's called the greater light and the lesser light. Like it's purposeful. I will not even name those entities because they're names of God. And Pharaoh, the person that they had just been set free from, who did he believe he descended from? The sun, right? I am the direct descendant of the sun, Ra, the God that they worship. So it is a absolute anti-idolatry thing. No way. So what God is saying right here is, I gave these things purpose and it's not for you to worship them. Do not worship the sun. Do not worship the moon. And, and it even says, and the stars. Don't worship the stars. Do we worship the stars today? No, I think astro astrology is the worship of the stars. Right? You're looking to the stars to get answers. I tell people, just stay away from that. And, I, and I've had disagreements from people like, why? You know, what's the big deal about, you know, looking at your horoscope or whatever? And, and this is my answer. I always say this. Why would I seek the stars when I could seek the Savior Jesus, their master and maker? It makes no sense to me. I'm not going to look to the stars for answers when I can go to their creator and to their master. It'd be like, you coming to my house... And then talking to Myron, my three-year-old, and asking him a Bible question. Why would you do that? Who should you ask if you came to my house? My wife, obviously, <laughs> totally. Uh, she'll give you the most wisdom. <laughs> I'll give you some knowledge. My wife will give you actually practical wisdom how this walks out, right? It's just, no, you, you go to Jesus, totally. So it's, it's anti-idolatry. Number two, um, these signs... In verse 18, God says this, when he had ordered this this way, he says, and it was good. I have argued and I believe that every time God says something is good, 
it is always directed towards humans because God's purpose in Genesis 1 is to create a good place for humans to dwell. So by him making the moon do its thing and the sun do its thing and us orbit around the sun, all that stuff, it's God saying, these things are really good because it's for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Who, what created animal or being cares about time? Does your cat care about time? Ever seen a stressed out cat? Like, man, I'm missing a meeting right now. You ever seen your golden retriever worried about time? No. Who are the only beings on earth, the only living beings on earth that care about time? Humans. And so God is saying, I'm gonna give you the ability to keep track of time with moons, with suns, with seasons, with all these things. I'm gonna give you the ability to keep track of time. Humans love time, don't we? When you see a new parent, with a brand new baby and you've got teenagers or grown kids and you see that brand new parent with a brand new baby, what do you, what is, it is mandatory for you to go up to them and say this, what? Look out, time flies, right? They're now asking for cookies. Tomorrow they're gonna be asking for the keys and some cash, right? It happens that fast, time flies. You have to say that. Conversations, just try, try to have a conversation and not mention anything about time. It's impossible. We're always, hey, what time are we supposed to meet up? Hey, uh, how long have you been married? Hey, when did you graduate? Hey, how old are you? We just love time. Time is like, it's ingrained into us. So two Sundays ago, Justin led worship and he then at the 11 o'clock, I don't know if you're here, uh, but they, he sang happy birthday to me. Who was here for that? But he also said I was 63 years old, <laughs> right? So, so I leave here and I talk to some people and then I head down the uh, aisle to a meeting down here and I'm walking by the kids' classes and this gal comes and she goes, I cannot believe you're 63. <laughs> you look so good for 63. I can't believe you're 63 because I'm 65. So I said, oh man, I'm not 63. She goes, oh, you're not? I said, no, I'm 65 like you. <laughs> and I just left it at that. We are dominated by time, 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 time. So God here almost like says, I'm gonna help you on that. You're gonna be able to track time. You're gonna be able to know about time, All right? Ecclesiastes 3, there's time for everything. We are a time-driven people. And then there's this little term for seasons. If you have a uh, noted Bible, it should have a note by that word season because it's actually for festival days. So God is here saying, I want you to be able to keep track of time. Why? So you can celebrate. It's in the very beginning, humans, when you exist, when you're having kids, when you're living life, I want you to be celebrating. I really like that. Do you know in the law itself, God commands that the Israelites Three times a year, they pack up, they travel down Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, trumpets, you know, they, they pack up and they head down to Jerusalem and they get together and they celebrate. He makes it the law. Why does God make it the law? Because if it's not the law, we will find an excuse not to do it. 
I got this project, you know, I'm working in my garage. I got to clean up my house. I can't do it. So God makes it, it's in the law. He demands it. You go down and you party or I will kill you. That's what God says. Like, I, it's that important to me. I thought we should all have bumper stickers that say party or die, signed God. And then just Leviticus, you know. It's God saying to his creatures, I want you to enjoy. I want there to be seasons of where you sit back and you just enjoy festivals and celebrations. And you know, that's in all, you go to any culture and they all have their seasons of celebration. So Christmas, everyone knows it's pagan, right? We took that from the pagans. And I love that we took it from the pagans because what they celebrated was this. It was the end of the dark days. So it was usually right around, you know, because of calendar problems and all that stuff. It was usually right around the darkest day. From that day forward, when they would celebrate that celebration, from that day forward, the days all got bigger and brighter and longer. And I love that we celebrate the birth of Jesus then because that's exactly what the gospel says. From here on forward, it gets better and brighter. Proverbs 4, 18, the life of the righteous man gets brighter and brighter until that day. And we have this great hope in Jesus. I love that. It's Christmas, yes. So that's all in this. Enjoy, don't be a slave to creation. Unplug, celebrate by season by season. Celebrate. Thirdly, the stars, the stars tell us, I think something about God. I believe God made the universe so big so that we'll never find the end of it. No matter how far we look out, no matter how powerful Hubble gets, we can never get to the end. And I told you this when I introduced the book, that right now science is marveling because the universe is actually expanding at an accelerated rate. Something is literally driving the universe apart, which according to the Big Bang, it should blow apart and then slow down. It's not happening. In fact, what they're looking at as they go out farther is those edges are actually accelerating away. Something is pushing them away. It goes against every single physical law that we know. So that's why when you hear these like terms, you'll hear like dark energy or dark matter. That is a precise scientific way of scientists saying, I don't have a clue. We're just gonna call it dark energy. And that's what must be forcing this thing apart. And they're like, it's gotta be like 90% because that's how big this force seems to be. I think God made it so vast so that we could never find the end of it. So we would know how big he is. Like our galaxy is one of a billion galaxies. But did you know this? If you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per hour, which means that in one second, you could circle the earth seven and a half times. It's really fast. If you could travel at that speed, it would take you 100,000 years just to cross our galaxy. And that's just the front porch of the universe. That's how vast this thing is. Have you ever gone outside and just stood in awe and worshiped because you see how great the universe is? I think King David, a man after God's own heart, he was standing outside looking at the stars when he penned Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Every Christian should spend time, Psalm 19, looking at the stars. And I realize it's Southern Oregon, so you're gonna have to wait till June to do that. 
<laughs> to see your star, but you know, in June, get outside and just marvel at the vastness. And it says that God spanned the universe with his hand. It says that God named the stars as he created them. They sang with joy, the book of Job says. Just unbelievable to me. So that's what God is saying in this. Don't do idols, get away from that. I'm not even gonna name these things. Are you kidding me? And I put them for you, for time, for seasons, for festivals, and realize how great I am. That's to me what the purpose of these verses are. So that's day four, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So, interesting word there, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. First blessing of God is on guess what? Fish. How interesting is that? He blesses the fish. I always knew dolphins were smart. They're saying something. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Day five, God says something interesting. So I believe verse 21 is once again, Moses editorial comment, because God says, and it's done. He just says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. It's done. The word swarm there is the same word that's used in Exodus when the plague of frogs come. So there were already frogs in the Nile and God says to the frogs, swarm, multiply, get crazy, get everywhere. So here's what I believe. I believe in verse one, you already have fish. In verse 20, they swarm. There's a lot more fish. It's God saying, in order for humans to really do well on this planet, man, the oceans are gonna have to team with tons and tons and tons of fish. So there's just this vast array of fish. You ever scuba dived? You ever snorkeled? It's one of the most amazing things in the world. Like the, the I, I had the distinct privilege of getting certified in Vanuatu, which is the just, the, it's unbelievable. It's, I, I, I dove in Hawaii as well, and I was so disappointed. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is nothing compared to Vanuatu. It's just unbelievable. Every color, every imaginable, just, you're like, how in the world? This is so amazing. And, and the interesting thing is, the deeper you get, I've gotten down to 160 feet, the deeper you get, what happens to the fish? They get uglier and uglier. Have you noticed that? If you, if you ever watch like a DVD where they get really deep, man, it's, the, it's nightmare fish, right? There's ugly in our world as well. All the ugly to me has been like confined to Australia or something. It's like God was like, had a bunch of extra parts. Like, what do I do with these parts? Platypus, totally, right? Let's put it in Australia because no one's there right now. So it's just as like, you're just like, oh my goodness, look at this creativity. Look at this, this is unbelievable. So now it swarms because God is saying, I want humans to flourish. And you're gonna have to need, you're gonna need resources for you to flourish. In verse 21, God again is doing something here. Inspiring Moses and God created the great sea creatures. The Hebrew there is the tannin. Once again, 
It was worshiped as a God. What God is saying right here is this. Uh Uh-uh, he's not a God. I made him. God is stripping the tannin of divinity. I own it. God repeats the same kind of thing in the book of Job. Many commentaries believe Job actually predates Genesis. Genesis, probably 15 BC, 1500 BC. Job may be 2000 BC. So it may predate this. And when God answers Job, his answer is, listen, the Leviathan and the behemoth, you know, those great creatures, I got them on a leash. When I say heal, they come. Like you can't even do that for your chihuahua, right? I'm that great. If you can trust me with the Leviathan and the behemoth, trust me with your life, Job. That's what he's saying. God's saying the same thing right here. Listen, these creatures, I made them and I controlled them. You do not have to fear me. There is one creator, God, and it is me. Day number five, day six. And God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made, once again, the word made there is that like making a bed, the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All that creeps was made on day six. There they are. Once again, I think verse six is mirroring, or day six is kind of mirroring what, what God in the oceans, right? For humans to flourish, they're gonna need this stuff. So I'm gonna create livestock. I'm gonna create animals that help humans to flourish on earth. I'm going to create a good place for Adam and Eve. Finishing day six. Then God said, the pinnacle, the last heavenly conversation. We talked about this on Sunday. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's actually a little poem. If you have a newer Bible, um, who, in, who in their Bible, verse 27, is different than the other verses? It's like smaller. Okay, that's a really, really helpful thing newer translations do. They're showing you that this is actually a little poem. And we'll look at a lot of the poems in the Bible. There's another one, uh, Adam gives a poem in verse 23 of chapter two. There's, there's all these little poems and these poems are massively important in the Bible, but that's a total separate point. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sunday, we looked at this. We'll do a lot of work on gender in chapter two. I wanna look at this mandate because God creates man, creates humans, and he says to them this. He says, verse 28, the blessing. 
be fruitful and multiply. I'm guessing most of us have figured that one out, right? We kind of got that one. If you have any questions after the sermon, after the message, feel free to ask Mark. He'll answer them for you. All right, so we, we got that one figured out. But then there's this other thing that happens. God then says, have subdue it, fill the earth, subdue it, and then, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is that? The dominion part is easy because it tells us what to have dominion over. Have dominion over the fish, have dominion over the birds, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, dominion, no problem. That we are, and we did this two Sundays ago, that we are called to be these rulers, never putting ourselves under creation. We don't worship golden calves. We don't do that. We're over creation. We never put ourselves under creation. We're rulers. We're supposed to, kings and queens, underneath our King Jesus, all right? So, so that's easy. But it's this other word, subdue. If you are a word search kind of person, good one to do a word search on because it's really interesting that's here. It's a war term. It's used almost exclusively for like subjugating a people or crushing them. It's almost always linked to battle, death, war. It's a brutal word. So here you have the creation mandate, Adam and Eve are created and God says, go to war. Huh? (laughs) What? What does this mean? We have this idea about the Garden of Eden, that it was paradise. We actually get that idea from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In the Septuagint, the word that they translate Eden into is paradiso. From where we get our word, paradise, right? So we get it from this translation. Well, Eden actually means delight. We'll talk about that more later. But it, it, it's, it's with this idea, we have this idea that the Garden of Eden was perfect. And it's a derived understanding. It's not actually in this text. God says over and over, it's good, but God never says it's perfect. Why wasn't Eden, the Garden of Eden, why wasn't it perfect? We're gonna find out in chapter three, verse one. There's something in there. There's a creature that's in there And there's also a tree in there. And God says, that's a really bad tree. Did God create that tree? Hmm, that's an interesting thought. How'd that tree get in there? Why is that tree there? What's the deal with the tree? Because it says that God created good trees and put them in there. And then he says, hey, Adam, there's a bad tree in there. Don't touch it. Actually, don't touch, he doesn't say that. Don't eat of it, right? Well, how'd the bad tree get there? Let's deal with this serpent, all right? So, So we're getting a little clue right here This word subdue, things are not like they seem. Adam and Eve, their mandate was, yes, rule over creation, but there's also something you need to go to war with, the serpent. Adam and Eve, their job as co-rulers with God, imaging God, ruling on earth was to defeat the serpent. Too many people, I think today, think our world is a playground when the Bible from Genesis chapter one to Revelation 19 screams, it's a battleground. 
It's not a friendly place. You have real, true enemies in here. That's why there's this thing in the New Testament over and over, Ephesians 6, 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's why 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lives, exists under the sway of the evil one. That there is a real power that wants to subjugate and dominate human beings. And I've said before, most humans want to play and not to fight. And when we play, and we don't realize that we're in a fight, we get taken out over and over. And what you see is the Old Testament is full of failure. The Israelites want to play, they don't want to fight, and the serpent wins, and they get kicked out of the good place. Like that, you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I've said this before. You get Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you get the whole Old Testament. God creates a good space for his people, they get in there, they wanna play and not fight, Satan takes them out, they get exiled. God creates a good place for his people, rebuilds, the walls rebuilt, everything seems good. They wanna play instead of fight, they get kicked out, right? Happens over and over and over again. So what you have is the only hope, you find it in chapter three, verse 15, there's coming one, the seed of the woman, and he will crush the serpent's head. That's our only hope. That Jesus on the cross crushed the serpent's head and the serpent bit his heel and poisoned him. That's our hope. So Calvary was when the serpent that's going to usurp the authority and Adam and Eve were supposed to subdue him. They could not. Jesus comes and subdues him. Happened on Calvary. Now you may be thinking, Matt, why is there so much evil then? Ephesians 6, 12 is written after the cross. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. It's written after the cross. What happened? I thought he crushed the evil one. I'm gonna tell you this until you can instantly tell me where I'm going. It's like this. It's like World War II, the battle at Normandy, right? The battle at Normandy, when the allied forces took the beaches of Normandy, the war was over. Every historian said that was it. That the Nazis were defeated at that point, but guess what? The war didn't end, did, did it that day. No, they had to push and push and push and drive the Nazis into Berlin until they extinguished him. And it was 18 more months of the most brutal fighting in all of World War II. Okay, our Normandy was Calvary. The decisive victory has been made. We're now in the in-between space between Normandy and Berlin, and we're pushing against the forces of evil. That's what we're doing right now. We know we're gonna win. We know the end of the story. We know the death blow has been given that it's just a writhing snake right now. We know we're gonna win, but that still doesn't mean the fight's over. Still means there's enemies, still means we push back, still means we're, we're involved in this thing. But we know, man, we're going to win. It's good news. Well, Matt, why is he waiting? Second Peter, chapter three, verse nine. God is long suffering. Not willing that any, not willing that any, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And as a believer in Jesus, I have good friends and I have family that I still say, God, be long-suffering. Be long-suffering. I want to see them saved. I want to see them brought in. I don't want to see them pushed out. Be long-suffering. So I am fine with Jesus's timeline. You come back at the right time. And while I'm waiting, 
I'm going to be sharing the gospel and hopefully seeing a bunch of people get saved. But we now fight for victory. We know it's going to happen. And we stand with our king armored up, knowing it's a battle, knowing that no matter what happens to me, in the end, I win, period. Whether it's here or there, I win. So he's the one that crushes the serpent's head. Adam and Eve were given that job, failure. Jesus succeeds. He's called the last Adam, the one that succeeds. It's Romans chapter five, all right? Verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is the favorite verse of all the pot farmers, right? Every green herb, Matt. I've had this conversation on this verse right here. Every green herb has been given to me, bro. I mean, come on, it's edibles. I'm making edibles, man. It says it's good for food. <laughs> I always say this, okay, bro. So how about hemlock seeds? You eating those? Right? One of the most poisonous plants in the world. You eat one of those seeds, what happens to you? All of a sudden your legs get paralyzed and the paralysis moves up till it hits your lungs and then you suffocate. One seed, bro. How about the oleander? tree, shrub actually. It's in front of a ton of people's houses in Grants Pass. One of those flowers, instant heart attack. You eating those? No. Why? Because something happened in the fall. Romans 8, 20 says that all creation has been subjugated to this emptiness and it's groaning and travailing right now. The, the world isn't like it was. Things have changed. Things are different now. It's totally, totally different. All right. It's been corrupt. And I've told this story before. I had, I had some new people move in, you know, down the road from me, bought five acres. And so I introduced myself to them, all tattooed up, California driver's license plates, RV. I'm like, hmm, what could this possibly be? <laughs> so I'm like, hey, guys, how are you guys doing? I'm pretty good. I said, hey, well, you know, I'm just down the road from you. I wanted to say hello. I know she moved in here. And I said, well, what are you guys going to do here? And there goes, that one of them said, we're cultivators. Cultivators, that's a cool word. I said, what are you cultivating? Anything that can make us money. Ah, hmm. I said, so do you think you can make money on marijuana? <laughs> they both kind of laughed. Yeah, we think we can make money on marijuana. Ah, okay. And then they go, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor of a church. One of the dudes just turns around and walks away. <laughs> he's just like, I'm out of here, dude. I am not dealing with you. The other guy get real intense. He just started looking at me. He's like, so what do you think about us using this land to grow marijuana? I said, I believe in private property. And if you are doing what you're doing within the laws of the land and you're doing it completely legal, ah, I don't got a problem with it. He's like, really? Totally, man. He goes, well, what do you think about people smoking pot? I said, well, Proverbs 31, six says this, give strong drink to the one who's perishing. I said, I think God has compassion on pain, the pain that's come from sin and the death that it works in us, that God has compassion on that and says, hey, here's a pain relief for your, for your pain. So I said, if, if I have a choice for my 84-year-old grandma, for instance, for her to be an Oxycontin with all of its crazy effects or for her to eat some marijuana and it gets the same results, oh man, I'm 100% into marijuana. I said, there are legitimate uses for marijuana. But I said, they're small. There's a ton of abuses and that's the problem. He goes, what do you mean? I said, because the human heart always takes the good gifts of God and abuses them. He's like, what do you mean? I said, look, give me some examples. Sex is a gift from God. Is sex abused? How much pain comes from the abuse of sex? 
ton, but guess what? It's God's idea. We'll look at that in chapter two, God's idea. But man, it gets abused and it hurts so many people. Food, God's idea. Eat, 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 man, enjoy it. Is, is food abused? Oh, totally. Like bulimia, anorexia. Like there's all these disorders linked to what? Food, the abuse of food. It's said work. Work's actually a gift from God. It's chapter two. It's before the curse. But how many people have had dads that were so disconnected because they were workaholics, right? We take the good gifts of God that in the right spot, man, serve us, but then all of a sudden they become our masters and then they crush us. I said, that's the problem with marijuana. Too many 20-year-old kids smoking pot and thinking they cannot exist without it and being stunted in what they're supposed to be. And what's so interesting, this guy was like, oh, I'd like to talk to you again. And I did. Because at Christmas, he had this wreck on his quad, ended up in a coma at the hospital. And because I had not burned bridges with him, I got to go in and pray with him and talk with him. And there I shared with him Romans 8, 28. I said, buddy, buddy, if you get things straight with Jesus, the serpent crusher, then know this, even this thing right here can work out for your good. I know that to be a promise of God. Now he didn't believe right then, but man, good seed. So for me, I think that we have to be very, very, very careful when we take the good gifts of God, whether, whatever they are, you know, they all have a place usually. But then when we start trying to make them more than what they are supposed to be, they never satisfy us. Because you and I, listen to this, you and I were created with too great a capacity. Marijuana is not big enough for us. Alcohol is not big enough for us. Sex is not big enough for us. And what happens is when we think it is and it's not, then usually the answer is, well, I just need more of it. If a little sex was good, then I need more of it. It just makes you emptier and emptier and emptier because Revelation 4.11 says this, we are created for God's pleasure. When we have God, when he fills that vacuum, that void, when he overflows us, then guess what? We can enjoy everything else because they're all put in their right perspective. So it's not every green herb. It's Jesus ultimately is the answer to the human heart. That's what we need. And it concludes by saying this. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So it appears, 29 and 30, the entire system on earth at this point was vegetarianism. So this is the vegan. If you're a vegan, this is your chat. These are your verses, man. We'll get to chapter nine for the rest of us where we get to eat meat. But right here, animals are eating every green plants. Um, it appears humans are only eating plants. They're not eating any meat at this point. It's all vegan. Interesting, when you look at the new heavens and new earth in Isaiah, it says the lion will eat straw like an ox. So it appears that it goes back to this kind of an ecosystem. Interesting for some. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Tove, tove. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, a couple quick points and I'm done. Remember, this was written to slaves who had just escaped from slavery, who still imagined themselves as these mud, brick, baking slaves. And God has just told them, no way, you're the Imago Dei. You're image bearers of me. And so when you read this chapter, I read this chapter, I'm always thinking, how do I image bear God well then? I want you to notice that in this chapter, there's this repeated phrase over and over and over again. 
And it's a repeated phrase, it is good. What is God saying when he's saying, it is good? Is it a, a moral evaluation? No, there's no good and there's no evil at this point. It's not moral. Is it, he's kind of looking at his own work and, being, and like congratulating himself, like, man, I knocked it out of the park with that one. The platypus, who would have thought of that, man? That's so awesome. No, what's he doing? He's enjoying his creation. He's just enjoying his creation. So there is a thing in Christians, and I always push on this, where we think it's like wrong to enjoy. Wrong to just enjoy. God is sitting here every single day and he's kicking back at the end of the day, if you would, and just enjoying what he's done. Man, this is awesome. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 17 says this, all things are given to us to enjoy. That is a crazy mandate. All things. We are supposed to be enjoyers of creation. Enjoyers of going to the lake and skiing. Enjoyers of getting on a motorcycle and riding through the streets or up into the wherever. We're supposed to be enjoyers of creation, just enjoying all these things that God has given to us. And enjoy. God does, creates, and then just says, it's good. And then secondly, we're supposed to be relaxers. These slaves, what they're being told is this, God is in control. God absolutely controls creation. From the crazy sea creature that puts fear in your heart to the Pharaoh that tried to put you under his thumb, God is in control. And he will bring into your life everything that you require to flourish. That's the big message here. God's in control. So relax, enjoy, and relax. Two, to me, giant messages that come out of chapter one to a bunch of slaves. Listen, I've given you this whole thing to enjoy. And relax, I got it. I'll take this one. Trust me on it. So Jesus, we're thankful that we serve the serpent crusher. We're thankful that we serve the one that spoke the stars into existence, the one that set the sun and the moon on their rotation, the one that spins the earth on its cycle. And I pray that we would go from here enjoying our evening, enjoying one another, enjoying creation, and that we go from here with a profound understanding that you are on the throne. You rule over the chaos. You order it. You structure it. You create flourishing environments for us. And so may we relax and trust you and obey you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.